You are listening to the Performers and Creators Lab. This is the story of how infamy can seep like a disease into everything else. This is the non-story story. The unreporting of the Damon Pohl story. Due to the sensitive nature of this story, all names, details, and circumstances have been changed. Any correlation to these facts with real life are coincidental. Welcome to the Performers and Creators Lab podcast, where we are empowering an army of artists on the leading edge. My name is Holly Shaw, best-selling author of The Creative Formula, hypnotherapist, and creativity coach. On this weekly show, we're going to be helping you to excel at your craft and find your edge, because it is my belief that your creative mind, open to its own genius, has the power to change the world. You are listening to Episode 10, Fame and the Threat of Infamy. I, Tanya. Have you seen this movie about American figure skater Tanya Harding? This movie has been haunting me since I saw it weeks ago. It made me weep in the movie theater. I'm talking like really ugly cry. And I think it's because I remember this event with Tanya Harding and Nancy Kerrigan when it happened. Because, see, I was just graduating high school. And it was a story, I feel, that really shaped me at the time. That put a little bit of fear in my heart. Now, the makers of the movie, they say that they tried to tell multiple sides of the story. But, you know, truth be told, I think you really leave empathizing with Tanya Harding. And at the end of the day, who's to say how much Tanya knew about what was going to happen to Nancy Kerrigan? But besides that, in that movie theater, I wept for Tanya's courage to skate and kick ass when the whole world was just watching and hating on her. I sympathize with dreams cut short, with the underdog with our culture's cruelty and our craving for fame. And I think partially I wept for that part of me that still feels like that poorly dressed Indiana high school girl that had wanted to be famous at one time, thinking that's going to solve everything. And I wept because it's the very fear of the world hating me that has sometimes kept me small, that has kept me at times glued to my seat, kept my mouth shut, kept me in the corner, kept me being nice and people-pleasing. And I wept for the part of me that's probably like the part of you that hungers to be seen and have an impact and the scared parts that try to keep you from it. After I came home from the movie theater, I looked up the Tanya Harding story on YouTube and watched the real video clips from her tournaments, the interviews, and I just totally went down that rabbit hole and got obsessed with this story all over again. And finally, after about four hours, uh, YouTube served up this clip of Tanya skating about five years after the whole thing went down. And in this video, you know, her hair is a little longer, her makeup is a little softer, and she's older a little bit, and she's nervous, but she's really excited about this chance to skate again. 
Now she stumbles and falls once or twice during this skate. It's not the performance of a lifetime. But there's something that I catch. This more mature Tanya is more elegant. It's subtle, but the fight is gone. And left is this pure joy. At this more womanly age, we see glimpses of that artist that Tanya was becoming. That artist that maybe she could have been. every artist necessarily wants to be famous, but I think there is an expectation, a kind of unspoken idea that if you make it, then you'll achieve some amount of notoriety. Making it means not having to hustle so hard for work. It means people hiring you without an audition, hiring you for a lot of money, and putting a large value on your work and requesting it often enough that you aren't a starving artist. That kind of success, especially in the world of arts, can mean some amount of notoriety, some amount of fame. So it's no surprise to me that artists may often have this desire, however secret, to be famous. But how many of you would like to be infamous? How many would like to trade in their anonymity for being famous for something bad? I mean, which would you rather be, successful and unknown, or known by everyone forever as a villain? This is the double-edged sword of being in the limelight. It's great when they love you, but very easily things can turn against you. I think we know this. We see it in the media every day. You know, I was just reading in The New Yorker that the most-watched video of Orson Welles is this video where it's a drunken outtake from a commercial when he was slurring his words. We love it when great artists get caught in a bar fight or when Lindsay Lohan gets a DUI or Amy Winehouse fell into drug addiction. We couldn't stop watching. Now, these stories sell newspapers, but they also make an uncomfortable and hostile environment in which we're supposed to spread our wings and shine and be fearless and visible? Now, the last two episodes focused on self-promotion, the inner and the outer game, but how can we truly step forward and be confident and brave if we're afraid of the absolute worst, if we're afraid of people making us wrong? The answer to that question determines the level of risk that you're willing to take. It determines how fearlessly you approach your work. How far are you willing to go to take a stance and how much are you willing to call attention to it? Would you rather be people-pleasing and receive polite applause? Or would you rather stand courageously on one side or another of the topic and risk people hating you? A story can have many perspectives and many lenses through which to view it. You can look at a story and make someone right, or you can make someone wrong. And if you set out with a judgment ahead of time, you'll tend to find those facts that support your story and ignore those that don't fit. The media chose to make Damon Pohl wrong in 2004 when he infected his then-rising starlet girlfriend 
with the HIV virus. I met Damon Pohl last year at a Screen Actors Guild workshop I was teaching about stage fright and how to calm audition nerves. Damon had entered the workshop a couple of minutes late and snuck in with a ball cap pulled over his eyes like he was hiding. After the workshop, he came up to me and shared with me his experience and how he was raked over by the press afterwards. It had been nearly 15 years since that event had happened. He had been 27, and now he was 41, still acting, but clearly very much entrenched in the events of that media circus from 15 years earlier. He wanted to move on with his life, but he was struggling. The event haunted him. No sooner would he be hired for jobs than they would find out that he was that guy and fire him off the set. Fifteen years later, he was still living in the shadow of that event. And so when I thought about approaching this topic of fame and infamy and the fear of being visible, I thought of Damon. And lucky for me, he was willing to share his story on this show. Or at first he was. This is the story of what happened after I published this piece the first time. This is the story of how that piece affected him and why we had to pull it. This is the story of how infamy can seep like a disease into everything else and create an untouchable vacuum around it. This is the non-story story. The unreporting of the Damon Pohl story. When I first aired this story, I was so excited that I blasted my entire email list saying this was a very special and important piece to me. Subject line, sharing an important piece with you. I don't always send these podcast episodes to everyone, but I feel like it's important to share this very meaningful work with you. This piece is particularly special to me because I think it shows the power of what we can do with our voices on podcasts or otherwise. The power in being able to tell our story on our terms and the amazing strength of the human heart to endure excommunication. Boy, looking back, that feels pretty naive. But you see, every once in a while, life gives me an opportunity to do something that heals wounds for everyone. And I thought that this was one of those moments. I thought that by sharing his story in a new way, it might help Damon feel more released from it, help him to position it firmly into the past. I took a risk in covering this story. But for me... There was no question about it. It felt in line with my integrity of what I wanted the show to do for people. But what I hadn't counted on was the responses I would get. Here's one response from a Facebook post. 
From my perspective, there is a significant difference between asking for compassion for a person who committed a crime and repented in some meaningful way and just feeling sorry for a guy who is upset that his criminal actions have not been forgotten. One listener said that it made her feel dirty to listen to it. I was telling the story of someone being raked over by the press already once, and the responses were nothing short of having him be raked over all over again. But I stood by my story. A little social media backlash didn't rattle me. I thought that I was talking about something important. I was telling someone's side of the story. I stood strong in my position, and I told my publicist, who winced at all of the responses, no press is bad press, right? She was silent. But I held my ground until I got a call from Damon himself asking me to pull the piece. Two frantic voicemail messages and many long text messages arrived to me after coming out of a session with a client the Friday after the episode was released. He was afraid that the piece was damaging. Even though I had been clear in what I was going to include, he was afraid that there were still too many things mentioned that could make it easy for people to identify him. And it became obvious that we weren't totally clear and aligned about what the purpose of this was. Was this an opportunity for him to tell his side of the story? To find some kind of peace with it? To come out to the public about how it really went down? Or was it more of a story about the aftermath of that experience and a window into that reckoning with himself? And I had to get clear myself. Was this story about him or was this story about infamy and shame? What was my intention with this piece and why was I so obsessed with this topic? What part of me was afraid of being shamed? Why was I so adamant? about telling this story. When we come back, we'll talk about that and about shame and about DNA and about family histories when we come back. If you love listening to the Performers and Creators Lab podcast, then you should subscribe on your iTunes app. Subscribing is free and you do it simply by the click of a button. And it means that new episodes show up in your playlist and you never miss one. Also, while you're there, please rate and review the podcast on iTunes. And hey, listen to this. If you leave a review, good or bad, you'll automatically get entered to win an autographed copy of my book, The Creative Formula. That's right. I'm going to write a little message in there and take it to the post office for you and everything. So every week after our February 14th launch, I'm going to be picking one reviewer's name out of a hat and declaring a winner. So leave me a review and it could be you receiving that book. All right. So we're going to do this week's drawing for the winner of the book from those of you who have left a review. But before we do, I wanted to share a little bit of commentary this was from social media. So I was on Facebook and um, I posted about self-promotion. I posted a call to find out what you all feel about self-promotion because I just did two episodes around this topic. And so I reached out on social media and I, I said, hey, you guys, where are you blocked around self-promotion? Why is it hard for you? Um, what is it about it that's hard for you? Where are you blocked? Where do you want some help? 
And I got this, um, a lot of great comments, a lot of great feedback from everyone. So thank you for that. But I especially wanted to highlight one uh, person, Michelle, who commented, and we had a really interesting conversation about, you know, kind of the anonymity of Facebook and social media and how people can be a little bit harsher when they're sort of behind the screen. So anyway, I want to read Michelle's comment. She says, we end up interacting with people from so many various backgrounds education levels, and parts of the world all at once that we are more likely to broadcast misunderstood or misinterpreted points of view. In person, say if you were traveling and met an individual of a different sort in real life, this might not lead to conflict because that intimacy of real life, human contact tends to open us up to one another's perspective being shared. Eliminate the human contact and add a peanut gallery of keyboard warriors and you end up with the infamous troll-infested comment thread with nothing but insults, attacks, and closed-minded responses. It's easy to shut each other out and shut yourself in on the internet. Thank you, Michelle, for that great comment. Um, you know, and I just want to say I hear you and I also think... You know, this is just one of those beautiful challenges that we're having to face right now. And for me, you know, I find the more I get really clear and clean on my intentions about what I'm posting and clear on my beliefs and my integrity behind them and the things that I'm willing to speak out about and the things that I'm not, then it gets easier because I know where I stand and I'm less likely to be moved by anyone's flippant comment. And I find I get less comments. You know, it depends, you know, it's like how you approach it, how you put your commentary on social media is going to determine how you get commentary back. Because I think when we, mm, I see some people I know posting controversial things that are kind of like venting in such a way that really invites everyone to jump on the bandwagon and either jump on the bandwagon with you or argue with you. And when you do that on social media, you do open yourself up for um, some different types of comments. But anyway, this is a deep discussion, but I thought it was worth talking about and sharing since we are talking in this podcast episode about being misunderstood. Obviously, is a whole different scenario, but still, on some level, there's this fear when you put yourself out there that you're going to be misunderstood, and it's just something that we all have to deal with. The more and more visible as an artist, as a creator, that you become. All right, this week's this week's drawing. Who is the winner going to be? All right, Dr. Minette. Dr. Minette. Awesome. Dr. Manette wins the book. I'm so excited to send you that book, Dr. Manette. I know Dr. Manette, she helps creatives with marketing. So I'm so excited to send you the book. And if you haven't let me, left me a review yet, do that. Do that because I'm going to be taking names all year, every week, pulling another name out of the hat to win a copy of the book. So your name doesn't leave the hat until... Uh, the year is over or you're pulled. So, so go ahead and leave a review. All right. <laughs> Back to the show. You are listening.
listening to the Performers and Creators Lab podcast with me, Holly Shaw. Call and leave a comment at 415-870-7064. Again, that's 415-870-7064. Or you can find out more about us on the web at performersandcreatorslab.com. come from a journalistic background. I come from a career as an artist. So I don't make any claims or have any notions about being objective about what it is that I'm interested in covering. For me, my work as an artist has always been wrapped up in my own healing as a person. I reach for those themes and those topics where I'm working stuff out. And through my pieces, I've been able to alchemize pain and the past into something new. So I knew that my interest in this story and this Damon Pole story was personal, but I didn't actually start to put together the pieces of why exactly until I had to take the episode down and rework it. Okay, here goes. From the time I was in grade school, I've had daydreams of being publicly shamed. Sounds pretty nuts, right? While some little girls were daydreaming about kissing boys, climbing trees, or riding horses, I was daydreaming about being forced to stand on stage in front of the entire school and being made fun of. On the surface, it doesn't make any sense. This had never actually happened to me. It wasn't some awful trauma that I had endured and was replaying again and again in my mind. And as far as my family goes, my parents were okay. They were loving and supportive. I wasn't shamed at home or anything like that. So why? Why was it when I laid my head down on my desk, I was imagining the worst kind of public shaming that I can conceive in my little fifth grade mind? For years and years, I've had no idea why this was. When I dove into my desire to do this piece, I started to think about my family history and put those puzzle pieces together. So my grandmother was born out of wedlock. I know this because I remember the moment that I found out about it. I was spending the night at grandma's house. It was Christmas time or some major holiday and I had been asleep, but I woke up because I heard loud voices in the other room and I could hear my grandmother distraught and upset. I remember getting up and peeking around the corner of the living room and seeing my grandmother crying. Oh, why did you have to tell them that? She said. She was so upset because apparently my aunt had told someone that grandmother had been born out of wedlock. And to her, this was a deep, deep source of shame. To me, this seems silly, not something to be ashamed of. But in my grandmother's time, this was a real pain point. This was something that was deeply shameful, something she'd been teased about. It had set her apart and she was made to feel like somehow it was her fault. It wasn't until a couple of years ago that I also found out that not only was my grandmother born out of wedlock, but she had also been conceived in rape. 
So not only was she born without a father, something that was apparently unforgivable during that time, but she was conceived out of an event that must have been very painful for my great-grandmother. Do you think that we inherit our family's trauma and pain? I do. And so do others. Dr. Rachel Yehuda, director of Mount Sinai's Traumatic Stress Studies Division, has done research that suggests that life experiences produce chemical effects in DNA, which is passed on between generations. And the team at Emory University School of Medicine ran experiments that showed that a traumatic event could affect the DNA and sperm and alter the brains and behavior of subsequent generations. This is according to BBC News. So science backs me up, and it makes me wonder if my imagining of public shamings doesn't rise out of the pain that's been passed through my family. And it's become more clear to me now more than ever, why I'm so drawn to being on stage, why performing is the thing in this lifetime that I can't seem to get enough of. It's a way of working through an inherited pain point. If you listen to episode four with Raz Kennedy, Be Afraid But Do It Anyway, you'll remember that I talked about love and fear, that love and fear cocktail that each artist has, an intoxicating combo of what we love and what we fear that propels us forward. This love of performing and fear of shame are my love and fear cocktail. When we come back, we'll be talking about John Ronson, the author of the book, So You've Been Publicly Shamed. One of the things that I'm loving so much about this podcast is all the voicemails that I'm getting and all of the people that I'm getting to meet through the podcast submissions. So if you don't know, I have a voicemail. I tell you about it every episode, but I also uh, am always keeping the door open to find out about new guests that I can interview, uh, whether you're an artist or whether you work with artists, whether you're in the industry and you're an expert that wants to share something on behalf of artists everywhere. So um, just so you know where you can submit, you fill out a form And it's pretty easy. It's a really quick form, but it lets me know sort of a little bit about you, lets me and my producers know, uh, you know, what kind of episode to place you in. So you go to performersandcreatorslab.com forward slash podcast. And there on the podcast page, you'll find at least three links. I know I have stuck on that page. So one at the top, one at the end of the text. It's everywhere. Basically, just look for the big orange button. And yeah, let me know if you want to come on the podcast. I'm always looking for great artists who have great stories to tell and people that would like to offer themselves up to get coaching on the show. So if you are someone that would like to be interviewed or you know someone, go and check it out and submit. Or you can just leave me a fun voicemail like this one. Uh, Yes. Good afternoon, Holly. Um, my name is Julio Murillo. Uh, I am an up and starting comic. You know, I'm fresh and new to the game. I'm hungry. And opportunities like this, I never let it pass. 
I'm like Kobe Bryant. I like to hog it a little bit. And, you know, I'm fairly new to the comedy game. I've been doing comedy, you know, <clears throat> since November of 2017. And a lot of people say, I got what it takes to make it to the top. <laughs> Julio, I love your energy and I love your enthusiasm, man. Keep rocking it. Keep going. Keep going. I dig it. You are listening to the Performers and Creators Lab podcast with me, Holly Shaw. Call and leave a comment at 415-870-7064. Again, that's 415-870-7064. Or you can find out more about us on the web at performersandcreatorslab.com. When Damon asked me to pull this piece, he was very gracious and apologetic about it. He liked the opening part about Tanya, and he liked the overall piece. He just felt like he sounded like a crazy person who was wrapped up in the past, like he was defending himself too much, not as centered and as calm as he wanted to be. He offered to do the interview again, and this time worked together to create something that focused less on his version of the story and more on how it affected his life afterwards. He urged me to check out the writer of Men Who Stare at Goats because he'd written a book that would help me understand the topic more deeply. That writer turned out to be John Ronson. And the book? So You've Been Publicly Shamed. So John Ronson set out to report on this topic of public shaming after a young researcher had created a John Ronson infomorph. This researcher created a spam bot that would tweet on social media and it would confuse his friends and followers about his true identity. It's a little funny now, but I'm sure that that would be maddening and horrible to have to deal with. And after seeking justice in order to get his identity back, he started to get obsessed with the public shamings that happen. And in his book, he interviews and reports on several different people who've been publicly shamed for a variety of incidents. From a young woman's bad joke that she tweeted on her way to South Africa that made her get fired, to a religious leader's sex scandal. John Ronson's book focuses on the stories of these people who've been publicly shamed and their lives afterwards. Well, obviously, reading the book, I was enthralled. I read it in about a day and a half barely able to put it down. But it was the reports from John Ronson after covering some of these stories. It was the shamings that he got from simply reporting and writing about this that stopped me dead in my tracks. A very bad feeling began to creep into my belly. And it made me wonder, do I want to go through with that? Was this Damon Pohl story worth repeating? Not just for me, but for him. My original intention with this piece was to create healing, to forge some kind of bridge from his damaged life to a new one where he could actually let go of the past. But going through a public shaming number two, if that were to happen, was that going to do it? Was that going to heal him? Back in 2004, when this first happened, 
The media made it seem like Damon was malicious, as though he intended to hurt his then-girlfriend. They made him sound so much like a monster that my friend, my close friend, when finding out that I was going to cover this story, of course, she Googled him and expressed real concern about me having anything to do with, quote, that guy. And in this day and age, when everyone Googles everyone else, having your search results bring up such a horror story means that you are never quite fully free of it. In talking with Damon, he recounted several times when the past had haunted him, cost him jobs and his home. Even though he has changed his stage name, it's still something that people will find out, and the results are never great. He told me of a time that he'd been hired to teach acting at a summer camp in his hometown, recommended by an old friend who knew the whole story, only to be let go after the first week of training and given no real reason. Countless times, he's been hired for projects only to be fired when the director realizes that he's that guy. Damon's had to live out of his car more than once when landlords discovered his identity, and it makes it hard to find an agent, to find representation. He never knows when to bring up the topic. He's talented, and he's gifted with great looks and a great voice. So, of course, he often gets seen, but then mm, he never knows exactly when to bring up the topic of his past. Too soon, and agents dismiss him, but if he brings it up later, they sometimes feel like he wasn't forthright with them. In speaking at length with Damon, I get the sense that even in those times when people don't know about his past, it still haunts him in the sense that he fears their finding out. If people don't return his phone calls, if they flake on him, then he'll always wonder and fear that somehow they know. We all have to make artistic choices about what we will stand in, what we will do and what we won't do. And covering something that could damage someone definitely went against my beliefs in making the world a better place for artists. Sometimes people have revealed things on my show that are uncomfortable for them. They share themselves pretty vulnerably. They tell stories and details that are humanizing. But the process, I feel, is always a good one. It puts them in a position to draw their audience closer. And it's always my goal to help an artist feel like a hero by the end of it. But with the Damon Pohl story... I wasn't so sure that this would be the outcome, no matter how we ended up telling it. A story can have many perspectives and many lenses through which to view it. You can look at a story and make someone right, or you can make someone wrong. And if you set out with an idea ahead of time, you'll tend to find those facts that support your story and ignore those that don't fit. John Ronson says, shame internalized can lead to agony. And I think the important thing to remember is that we can't control whether other people are going to make us right or make us wrong, but we can choose how we feel about it. The infamy that people are able to endure is inspiring. 
Tanya Harding wants us to know she's happy now and that she's a good mom. And my grandmother, she eventually met and married my grandfather, who was also without a father. And they ended up having four children and a farm and a wonderful life together. And Damon Pohl is in a play. He's got another film he's working on. He's not done. He hasn't thrown in the towel. And on some level, I wonder if, since having endured the worst, he doesn't feel as if he has nothing to lose to keep trying. And maybe that's the lesson. Play as if you have nothing to lose. And be confident that whatever you're playing, you are playing in complete integrity with your own rules. And find a way to alchemize your shame, work through your own pain, and become aware of those places where you've picked up pain that isn't even yours along the way. I think that's the best that any of us can do. The beautiful music that you've been listening to in this episode was composed by Dan Cantrell from his album, Music for the Purple Onion. This album is a selection of music written for the film, The Purple Onion. The film written, directed, produced, filmed, and edited by Matt Simonowski. and ideas for these episodes come directly from your posts and your comments in the Performers and Creators Lab community Facebook group. So be sure to find us and join us there. You can share what you're working on. You can meet some of the guests on the show and get support from me and the other members of the group. Show ideas also come from my amazing team of creative think tankers, Melanie Myers, Erica Milligan, and Hannah Romanowski. And a big thank you to my producers, Q14, and executive producer Robert Cholino and Voice America Network. And thank you for listening to the Performers and Creators Lab podcast. And be sure to subscribe so that you can look forward to a new episode every week. My name is Holly Shaw. 